Cal Reynolds shifted his tobacco quid to the other side of his mouth as he squinted down the dull blue barrel of his Winchester. His jaws worked methodically, their movements ceasing as he found his bead. He froze into rigid immobility, then his fingers hooked on the trigger. The crack of the shot sent the echoes rattling among the hills, and like a louder echo came an answering shot. Reynolds flinched down, flattening his rangy body against the earth. Swearing softly, a gray flake jumped from one of the rocks near his head, the ricocheting bullet whining off into space. Reynolds involuntarily shivered. The sound was as deadly as the singing of an unseen rattler. He raised himself gingerly, high enough to peer out between the rocks in front of him, separated from his refuge by a broad level grown with mesquite grass and prickly pear, rose a tangle of boulders similar to that behind which he crouched. From among these boulders floated a thin wisp of whitish smoke. Reynolds' keen eye, trained to sun-scorched distances, detected a small circle of dully gleaming blue steel among the rocks. That ring was the muzzle of a rifle but Reynolds well knew who lay behind that muzzle. The feud between Cal Reynolds and Esau Brill had been long for a Texas feud. Up in the Kentucky mountains, family wars may have straggled on for generations, but the geographical conditions and human temperaments of the Southwest were not conducive to long drawn out hostilities. Their feuds were generally concluded with an appalling suddenness and finality. The stage was a saloon, the streets of a little cow town or the open range, Sniping from the laurel was exchanged for the close-range thundering of six-shooters six and sawed-off shotguns, which decided matters quickly one way or the other. The case of Cal Reynolds and Esau Brill was somewhat out of the ordinary in the first place. The feud concerned only themselves. Neither friends nor relatives were drawn into it. No one, including the participants, knew just how it started. Cal Reynolds merely knew that he had hated Esau Brill most of his life, and that Brill reciprocated. Once his youth, they had clashed with violence and intensity of rival young catamounts. From that encounter, Reynolds carried away a knife scar across the edge of his ribs, and Brill a permanently impaired eye. It had decided nothing. They had fought to a bloody gasping deadlock, and neither had felt any desire to shake hands and make up. That is a hypocrisy developed in civilization, where men have no stomach for fighting to the death. After a man has felt his adversary's knife grate against his bones, his adversary's thumb gouging at his eyes, his adversary's boot heel stamped into his mouth, he is scarcely inclined to forgive and forget, regardless of the original merits of the argument. So Reynolds and Brill carried their mutual hatred into manhood, and as cowpunchers riding for rival ranches, it followed that they found opportunities to carry on their private war. Reynolds rustled cattle from Brill's boss, and Brill returned the compliment. Each raised at the other's tactics, and considered himself justified in eliminating his enemy in any way that he could. Brill caught Reynolds without his gun one night in a saloon at Cowwells, and only in an ignominious flight out the back with bullets barking at his heels saved Reynolds' scalp. Again, Reynolds, lying in the chaparral, neatly knocked his enemy out of his saddle at 500 yards with a 30-30 slug, and but for the inopportune appearance of a line rider, the feud would have ended there. Reynolds decided in the face of his witness to forgo his original intentions of leaving his covert and hammering out the wounded man's brains with his rifle butt. Brill recovered from his wound, having the vitality of a longhorn bull, in common with all the, with all his sun-leathered, iron-thewed breed, and as soon as he was on his feet, he came gunning for the man who had waylaid him. Now, after these onset and skirmishes, the enemies faced each other at a good rifle range. 
among the lonely hills where interruption was unlikely. For more than an hour they had lain among the rocks shooting at each other. Hint of movement neither had scored a hit though. The thirty-thirties whistled perilously close. In each of Reynolds' temples a tiny pulse hammered maddeningly. The sun beat down on him and his shirt was soaked with sweat. Gnats swarmed about his head, getting into his eyes and he cursed venomously. His wet hair was plastered to his scalp. His eyes burned with the glare of the sun and the rifle barrel was hot to his calloused hand. His right leg was growing numb, and he shifted it cautiously, cursing at the jingle of the spur, though he knew Bro could not hear. All his discomfort added fuel to the fire of his wrath. Without process of conscious reasoning, he attributed all his suffering to his enemy. The sun beat dazingly on his sombrero, and his thoughts were slightly addled. It was hotter than the hearthstone of hell among those bare rocks. His tongue caressed his baked lips, through the muddle of his brain burned his hatred of Esau Brill. It became more than an emotion. It was an obsession, a monstrous incubus. When he flinched from the whip crack of Brill's rifle, it was not from fear of death, but because the thought of dying at the hands of his foe was an intolerable horror that made his brain rock with red frenzy. He would have thrown his life away recklessly if by so doing he could have sent Brill into eternity just three seconds ahead of himself. He did not analyze these feelings. Men who live by their hands have little time for self-analysis. He was no more aware of the quality of his hate for Esau Brill, and he was consciously aware of his hands and feet. It was part of him, and more than part. It enveloped him, engulfed him. His mind and his body were no more than its material manifestations. He was the hate. It was the whole soul and spirit of him, unhampered by the stagnant and nerviating shackles of sophistication and intellectuality. His instincts rose sheer from the naked primitive, and from them crystallized an almost tangible abstraction, a hate too strong for even deaths to destroy, a hate powerful enough to embody itself in itself, without the aid or the necessity of material substance. For perhaps a quarter of an hour, neither rifle had spoken, instinct with death as rattlesnakes coiled among the rocks, soaking up poison from the sun's rays. The feudists lay each waiting, his chance playing the game of endurance until the taut nerves of one or the other should snap. It was Esau Brill who broke. Not that his collapse took the form of any wild madness or nervous explosion. The wary instincts of the wild were too strong in him for that. But suddenly, with a screamed curse, he hitched up on his elbow and fired blindly at the tangle of stones which concealed his enemy. Only the upper part of his arm and the corner of his blue-shirted shoulder were for an instant visible. That was enough in that flash second Cal Reynolds jerked the trigger, and a frightful yell told him his bullet had found its mark, and at the animal pain in that yell, reason and lifelong instincts were swept away by an insane flood of terrible joy. He did not whoop exultantly and spring to his feet, but his teeth bared in a wolfish grin, and he involuntarily raised his head. Waking instinct jerked him down again. It was chance that undid him, even as he ducked back. Brill's answering shot cracked. Cal Reynolds did not hear it, because simultaneously with the sound, something exploded in his skull, plunging him into utter blackness, shot briefly with red sparks. The blackness was only momentary. Cal Reynolds glared wildly around, realizing with a frenzied shock that he was lying in the open. The impact of the shot had sent him rolling from among the rocks, and in that quick instant he realized that it had not been a direct hit. Chance had sent the bullet glancing from a stone, apparently to flick his scalp in passing. That was not so important. What was important was that he was lying out, in full view, 
where Esau broke, could fill him full of lead. A wild glance showed his rifle lying close by. It had fallen across a stone and lay with the stock against the ground, the barrel slanting upward. Another glance showed his enemy standing upright among the stones that had concealed him. In that one glance, Cal Reynolds took in the details of the tall, rangy figure, the stained trousers sagging with the weight of the holstered six-shooter, the legs tucked into the worn leather boots, the streaks of crimson on the shoulder of the blue shirt, which was plastered to the wearer's body with sweat the tousled black hair from which perspiration was pouring down the unshaven face. He caught the glint of yellow, tobacco-stained teeth, shining in a savage grin. Smoke still drifted from the rifle in Brill's hand. These familiar and hated details stood out in startling clarity during the fleeting instant while Reynolds struggled madly against the unseen chains which seemed to hold him to the earth. Even as he thought of the paralysis, a glancing blow on the head might induce, something seemed to snap, and he rolled free. Rolled is hardly the word. He seemed almost to dart to the rifle that lay across the rock, so lightly his limbs felt. Dropping behind the stone, he seized the weapon. He did not even have to lift it, as it lay. It bore directly on the man who was now approaching. His hand was momentarily halted by Esau Brill's strange behavior. Instead of firing or leaping back into cover, the man came straight on, his rifle in the crook of his arm, that damnable leer still on his unshaven lips. Was he mad? Could he not see that his enemy was up again, raging with life and with a cocked rifle at his heart? Brill seemed not to be looking at him, but to one side, at the spot where Reynolds had just been laying. Without seeking further for the explanation of his foe's actions, Cal Reynolds pulled the trigger. With the vicious spang of the report, a blue shred leaped from Brill's broad breast. He staggered backwards, his mouth flying open, and the look on his face froze Reynolds again. Esau Brill came over Breed, which fights to its last gasp. Nothing was more certain than that. He would go down pulling the trigger blindly until the last red vestiges of life left him. Yet the ferocious triumph was wiped from his face with the crack of the shot, not to be replaced by an awful expression of dazed surprise. He made no move to lift his rifle, which slipped from his grasp, nor did he clutch at his wound, throwing out his hands in a strange, stunned, helpless way. He reeled backward on slowly buckling legs, his feature frozen into a mask of stupid amazement that made his watcher shiver with its cosmic horror. Through the open lips goes the tide of blood, dyeing the damp shirt, and like a tree that sways and rushes, suddenly earthward, Esau Brill crashed down among the mesquite grass and lay motionless. Cal Reynolds rose, leaving the rifle where it lay. The rolling grass-grown hills swam misty and indistinct to his gaze. Even the sky and the blazing sun had a hazy, unreal aspect, but a savage content was in his soul. The long feud was over at last, and whether he had taken his death wound or not, he had sent Esau Brill to braze the trail to hell ahead of him. Then he started violently, his gaze wandered to the spot where he had rolled after being hit. He glared. Were his eyes playing him tricks? Yonder in the grass, Esau Brill lay dead, yet only a few feet away stretched another body. Rigid with surprise, Reynolds glared at the rangy figure, slumped grotesquely beside the rocks. It lay partly on its side as if flung there by some blind convulsion, the arms outstretched, the fingers crooked as if blindly clutching, the short-cropped sandy hair was splashed with blood, and from a ghastly hole in the, in the temple, the brains were oozing. From a corner of the mouth seeped a thin trickle of tobacco juice to stain the dusty neckcloth, and as he gazed, 
An awful familiarity made itself evident. He knew the feel of those shiny leather wristbands. He knew with fearful certainty whose hands had buckled that gun belt. The tang of the tobacco juice was still on his palate. In one brief destroying instant, he knew he was looking down at his own lifeless body, and with that knowledge came true oblivion. The clangor of the swords had died away. The shouting of the slaughter was hushed. Silence lay on the red-stained snow, the pale bleak sun that glittered so blindingly from the ice field, and the snow-covered plain struck sheens of silver from rent corslet and broken blade, where the dead lay in heaps. The nerveless hand had gripped the broken hilt, helmeted heads, back drawn in the death throes, tilted red beards and golden beards grimly upward, as if in last invocation to Ymir the frost giant. Across the red drifts and mail-clad forms, two figures approached one another. In that utter desolation, only they moved. The frosty sky was over them, the white illimitable plain around them. The dead men at their feet, slowly through the corpses they came, as ghosts might come to a tryst through the shambles of a world. Their shields were gone, their corslets dinted, blood smeared their mail, their swords were red, their horned helmets showed the marks of fierce strokes. One spoke, he whose locks and beards were red as blood on the sunlit snow. Man of the raven locks, said he, tell me your name, so that my brothers in Vanheim may know who was the last of Wolfhir's band to fall before the sword of Heimdall. This is my answer, replied the black-haired warrior. Not in Vanheim, but in Valhalla, will you tell your brothers the name of Amra of Akbitana? Heimdall roared and sprang. His sword swung in a mighty arc. Amra staggered, and his vision was filled with red sparks as the blade shivered into bits of blue fire on his helmet. But as he reeled, he thrust with all the power of his great shoulders. The sharp point drove through brass scales, bones, and heart. The red-haired warrior died at Amra's feet. Amra stood swaying, trailing his sword, a sudden sick weariness assailing him. The glare of the sun on the snow cut his eyes like a knife, and the sky seemed shrunken and strangely far. He turned away from the trampled expanse, where yellow-bearded warriors lay locked with red-haired slayers in the embrace of death. A few steps he took, and the glare of the snowfields was suddenly dimmed. A rushing wave of blindness engulfed him, and he sank down in the snow, porting himself on one mailed arm, seeking to shake the blindness out of his eyes, as a lion might shake his mane. A silvery laugh cut through his dizziness, and his sight cleared slowly. There was a strangeness about all the landscape that he could not place or define, an unfamiliar tinge to earth and sky, but he did not think long of this. Before him, swaying like a sapling in the wind, stood a woman. Her body was like ivory, and save for a veil of gossamer, she was naked as the day. Her slender bare feet were whiter than the snow they spurned. She laughed, and her laughter was sweeter than the rippling of silvery fountains, and poisonous with cruel mockery. Who are you? demanded the warrior. What matter? Her voice was more musical than a silver-stringed harp, but it was edged with cruelty. Call up your men, he growled, grasping his sword. Though my strength fail me, yet they shall not take me alive. I see that you are of the Vanir. Have I said so? He looked again at her unruly locks, she had thought to be red. Now he saw that they were neither red nor yellow, but a glorious compound of both colors. He gazed, spellbound, 
her hair was like elfin gold striking which the sun dazzled him her eyes were neither wholly blue nor wholly gray but of the shifting colors and dancing lights and clouds of colors he could not recognize her full red lips smiled and from her slim feet the blinding crown of her billowy hair her ivory body was as perfect as the dream of a god amra's pulse hammered in his temple i cannot tell said he whether you of vanaheim and mine enemy or of asgard and my friend far have i wandered from zingara to the sea of Iliet, in stygia and cush and the country of hyrcanians but a woman like you i have never seen your locks blind me with their brightness not even among the fairest daughters of the aesir have i seen such hair by ymir who are you to swear by ymir she mocked what know of the gods of ice and snow you who've come up from the south to adventure among strangers by the dark gods of my own race he cried have i been backward in the sword-place stranger or no this day i have seen fourscore warriors fall and i alone survived the field where mulfier's reavers met the men of Bragi. tell me woman have you caught the flash of mail across the snow plains or seen armored men moving upon the ice i have seen the hoar-frost glittering in the sun she answered i have heard the wind whispering across the everlasting snow he shook his head Niord should have come up with us before the battle joined i fear he and his warriors have been ambushed wolfier lies dead with all his weapon men i had thought there was no village within many leagues of this spot for the war carried us far but you can have come no great distance over these snows naked as you are lead me to your tribe if you are of asgard for i am faint with the weariness of strife my dwelling place is further than you can walk amra of akpatana she laughed spreading wide her arms she swayed before him her golden head lolling wantonly her scintillating eyes shadowed beneath the long silken lashes am i not beautiful man like dawn running naked on the snows he muttered his eyes burning like those of a wolf then why do you not rise and follow me who is the strong warrior who falls down before me she chanted in maddening mockery lie down and die in the snow with the other fools amra of the black hair you cannot follow where i would lead with an oath the man heaved himself upon his feet his blue eyes blazing his dark scarred face convulsed rage shook his soul but desire for the taunting figure before him hammered at his temples and drove his wild blood riotlessly through his veins passion fierce as physical agony flooded his whole being so that earth and sky swam red to his dizzy gaze and weariness and faintness were swept from him in madness he spoke no word as he drove at her fingers hooked like talons with a shriek of laughter she leaped back and ran laughing at him over her white shoulder with a low growl amra followed he had forgotten the fight forgotten the mailed warriors who lay in their blood forgotten niord's belated reavers he had thought only for the slender white shape which seemed to float rather than run before him out across the white blinding plain she led him the trampled red field fell out of sight behind him but still amra kept on with the silent tenacity of his race his mailed feet broke through the frozen crust he sank deep in the drifts and forged through them by sheer strength but the girl danced across the snow as light as a feather floating across a pool her naked feet scarcely left their imprint 
on the hoarfrost in spite of the fire in its veins the cold bit through the warrior's mail and furs but the girl in her gossamer veil ran as lightly and as gaily as she danced through the palms and rose gardens of pontaine black curses drooled through the warrior's parched lips the great veins swelled and throbbed in his temples teeth gnashed spasmodically you cannot escape me he roared lead me into a trap and i'll pile the heads of your kinsmen at your feet hide from me and i'll tear apart the mountains to find you i'll follow you to hell and beyond hell her maddening laughter floated back to him and foam flew from the warrior's lips further and further into the waste she led him till he saw wide plains give way to low hills marching upward in broken ranges far to the north he caught a glimpse of towering mountains blue with the distance or white with the eternal snows above these mountains shone the flaring rays of the borealis they spread fan-wise into the sky frosty blades of gold flaming light changing in color growing and brightening above him the skies glowed and crackled with strange lights and gleams the snow shone weirdly now frosty blue now icy crimson now cold silver through a shimmering icy realm of enchantment amra plunged doggedly onward in a crystalline maze where the only reality was the white body dancing across the glittering snow ever beyond his reach yet he did not wonder at the necromantic strangeness of it all now even when two gigantic figures rose up to bar his way the scales of their mail were white with hoarfrost their helmets and their axes were sheathed in ice snow sprinkled their locks and their beards or spikes of icicles their eyes were cold as the light that streamed above them brothers cried the girl dancing between them look who follows i have brought you a man for the feast take his heart that we may lay it smoking on our father's board the giants answered with roars like the grinding of icebergs on a frozen shore and heaved up their shining axes the maddening akbitanan hurled himself upon them a frosty blade flashed before his eyes blinding him with his brightness and he gave back a terrible stroke that sheared through his foe's thigh with a groan the victim fell and at the instant Amr was dashed into the snow, his left shoulder numb from the blow of the survivor, from which the warrior's mail had barely saved his life. Amra saw the remaining giant looming above him like a colossus carved of ice, etched against the glowing sky. The axe fell to sink through the snow and deep into the frost earth as Amra hurled himself aside and leapt to his feet. The giant roared and wrenched the axe head free even as he did so amra's sword sang down the giant's knees bent and he sank slowly into the snow which turned crimson with the blood that gushed from his half-severed neck amra wheeled to see the girl standing a short distance away staring in wide-eyed horror all mockery gone from her face he cried out fiercely and the blood drops flew from his sword as his hand shook in the intensity of his passion call the rest of your brothers he roared all the dogs i'll give their hearts to the wolves with a cry of fright she turned and fled she did not laugh now nor mock him over her shoulder she ran as for her life and though he strained every nerve and thew until his temples were like to burst in the snow swam red to his gaze she drew away from him dwindling in the witch fires of the skies until she was a figure no bigger than a child then a dancing white flame on the snow then a dim blur in the distance but grinding his teeth until the blood started from his gums he reeled on and he saw the blur grow to a dancing white flame 
and then she was running less than a hundred paces ahead of him and slowly the space narrowed foot by foot she was running with effort now her golden locks blowing free he heard the quick panting of her breath saw a flash of fear in the look she cast over her alabaster shoulder grim endurance of the warrior had served him well speed ebbed from her flashing white legs she reeled in her gait and his untamed soul flamed up the fires of hell she had fanned so well with an inhuman roar he closed in on her just as she wheeled with a haunting cry and flung out her arms to fend him off his sword fell on the snow as he crushed her to him her supple body bent backward as she fought with desperate frenzy in his iron arms her golden hair blew about her face blinding him with its sheen the feel of her slender figure twisted in his mailed arms drove him to blind her madness strong fingers sank deep in her smooth flesh and that flesh was cold as ice as if he embraced not a woman of human flesh and blood but a woman of flaming ice she writhed her golden head aside striving to avoid the savage kisses that bruised her red lips you are cold as the snow he mumbled dazedly i will warm you with the fire in my blood with a desperate wrench she twisted from his arms leaving her single gossamer garment in his grasp she sprang back and faced him her golden locks in the wild disarray her white bosom heaving her beautiful eyes blazing with terror for an instant he stood frozen awed by her terrible beauty as she posed naked against the snows and in that instant she flung her arms towards the lights that glowed in the skies above her and cried out in a voice that rang in amor's ears forever after ymir oh my father save me amra was leaping forward arms spread to seize her when with a crack like the breaking of an ice mountain the whole skies leaped into icy fire the girl's ivory body was suddenly enveloped in a cold blue flame so blinding that the warrior threw up his hands to shield his eyes a fleeting instant skies and snowy hills were bathed in crackling white flames blue darts of icy light frozen crimson fires then amra staggered and cried out the girl was gone the glowing snow lay empty and bare high above him the witch lights flashed and played in a frosty sky gone mad among the distant blue mountains there sounded a rolling thunder as of a gigantic war chariot rushing behind steeds whose frantic hooves struck lightning from the snows and echoes from the skies and suddenly the borealis the snowy hills and the blazing heavens reeled drunkenly to amorous sight thousands of fireballs burst with showers of sparks and the sky itself became a titanic wheel which rained stars as it spun under his feet the snowy hills heaved up like a wave and actanon crumpled into the snows to lie motionless in a cold dark universe whose sun was extinguished eons ago amra felt the movement of life alien and unguessed an earthquake had him in its grip and was shaking him to and fro at the same time chafing his hands and feet until he yelled in pain and fury and groped for his sword he's coming too horsa grunted a voice haste he must rub the frost of out of his limbs if he's ever to wield a sword again he won't open his left hand growled another his voice indicating muscular strain he's clutching something amra opened his eyes and stared into the bearded faces that bent over him he was surrounded by tall golden-haired warriors in mail and furs amra you live by crom Njord grasped he am i alive or are we all dead and in valhalla we live grunted the aesir busy over amra's half-frozen feet we had to fight our way through an ambush else we had come up with you before the battle was joined 
the corpses were scarce cold when we came upon the field we did not find you among the dead so we followed your spoor in ymir's name amra why did you wander off into the wastes of the north we had followed your tracks in the snow for hours had a blizzard come up and hidden them we had never found you by ymir swear not so often by ymir muttered a warrior glancing at the distant mountains this is his land and the god bides among yonder mountains the legends say i followed a woman amra answered hazily we met braggy's men in the plains i know not how long we fought i alone lived i was dizzy and faint the land lay like a dream before me only now do all things seem natural and familiar the woman came and taunted me she was beautiful as a frozen flame from hell when i took at her i was as one mad and forgot all else in the world i followed her did you not find her tracks where the giants and the icy male i slew Mjord shook his head we found only your tracks in the snow amra then it may be i was mad said amra dazedly yet you yourself are no more real to me than was the golden-haired witch who fled naked across the snow before me from my very hands she vanished in icy flame he is delirious whispered a warrior not so cried an older man whose eyes were wild and weird it was atali the daughter of ymir the frost giant to fields of the dead she comes and shows herself to the dying myself when a boy i saw her when i lay half slain on the bloody field of wolraven i saw her walking among the dead in the snows her naked body gleaming like ivory and her golden hair was like a blinding flame in the moonlight i lay and howled like a dying dog because i could not crawl after her she lures men from stricken fields into the wasteland to be slain by her brothers the ice giant who lay men's red hearts smoking on ymir's board amra had seen atali the frost giant's daughter bah grunted horsa old grom's mind was turned in his youth by a sword cut on the head amra was delirious with the fury of battle look how his helmet is dented any of those blows might have addled his brain it was an hallucination he followed into the waste he is from the south what does he know of atali you speak truth perhaps muttered amra it was all strange and weird by Krom he broke off glaring at the object that still dangled from his clenched left fist the others grasped silently at the veil he held up a wisp of gossamer that was never spun by human distaff well that was almost problematic thought i was gonna have to read about a rape the sun had set the great shadows came striding over the forest in the weird twilight of a late summer day i saw the path ahead glide on among the mighty trees and disappear and i shuddered and glanced fearfully over my shoulder miles behind lay the nearest village miles ahead the next i looked to left and to right as i strode on and anon i looked behind me and anon i stopped short grasping my rapier as a breaking twig betokened the going of some small beast or was it a beast but the path led on and i followed because forsooth i had naught else to do as i went i bethought me my own thoughts will rout me if i be not aware what is there in this forest except perhaps the creatures that roam it deer and the like tush the foolish legend of those villagers and so i went and the twilight faded into dust stars began to blink and the leaves of the trees murmured in the faint breeze and then i stopped short my sword leaping to my hand for just ahead around a curve of the path someone was singing the words i could not distinguish but the accent was strange almost barbaric i stepped behind a great tree and the cold sweat beat through my forehead 
Then the singer came in sight, a tall, thin man, vague in the twilight. I shrugged my shoulders, a man I did not fear. I sprang out, my point raised. Stand! He showed no surprise. I prithee handle thy blade with care, friend, he said. Somewhat ashamed, I lowered my sword. I am new to this forest, I quoth apologetically. I heard talk of bandits. I crave pardon where, where lies the road to Villafir. Corblu, you've missed it, he answered. You should have branched off to the right some distance back. I am going there myself. If you may abide my company, I will direct you. I hesitated. Yet why should I hesitate? Why, certainly. My name is de Montour of Normandy, and I am Carolus Le Loup. No, I started back. He looked at me in astonishment. Pardon, said I. The name is strange. Does not loop mean wolf? My family were always great hunters, he answered. He did not offer his hand. You will pardon my staring, said I, as we walked down the path. But I can hardly see your face in the dusk. I sensed that he was laughing, though he made no sound. It is little to look upon, he answered. I stepped closer, then leaped away, my hair bristling. A mask, I exclaimed. Why do you wear a mask, Masu? It is a vow, he exclaimed. I'm fleeing a pack of hounds. I vowed that if I escaped, I would wear a mask for a certain time. Hounds, Masu? Wolves, he answered quickly. I said wolves. We walked in silence for a while, and then my companion said, I'm surprised that you walk these woods by night. Few people come these ways, even in the day. I am in haste to reach the border, I answered. A treaty has been signed with the French, and the Duke of Burgundy should know of it. The people at the village sought to dissuade me. They spoke of a wolf that was purported to roam these woods. Here the path branches to Villaferre, said he, and I saw a narrow, crooked path that I had not seen when I passed it before. It led in amidst the darkness of the trees. I shuddered. You wish to return to the village? No, I exclaimed. No, no. Lead on. So narrow was the path that we walked, single file, he leading. I looked well at him. He was taller, much taller than I, and thin, wiry. He was dressed in a costume that smacked of Spain. A long rapier swung at his hip. He walked with long, easy strides, noiselessly. Then he began to talk of travel and adventure. He spoke of many lands and seas he had seen and many strange things. So we talked and went farther and farther into the forest. I presumed that he was French, yet he had a very strange accent that was neither French nor Spanish nor English, not like any language I had ever heard. Some words he slurred strangely, and some he could not pronounce at all. This path is often used, is it? I asked. Not by many, he answered and laughed silently. I shuddered. It was very dark, and the leaves whispered together among the branches. A fiend haunts this forest, I said. So the peasants say, he answered. But I have roamed it oft and have never seen his face. Then he began to speak of strange creatures of darkness, and the moon rose, and shadows glided among the trees. He looked up at the moon. Haste, said he. We must reach our destination before the moon reaches her zenith. We hurried along the trail. They say, said I, that a werewolf haunts these woodlands. It might be, said he, and we argued much upon the subject. The old women say, said he, that if a werewolf is slain while a wolf, then he's slain. But if he is slain as a man, then his half-soul will haunt his slayer forever. But haste thee, the moon nears her zenith. We came into a small moonlit glade, and the stranger stopped. Let us pause a while, said he. 
Nay, let us be gone, I urged. I like not this place. He laughed without sound. Why, said he, this is a fair glade, as good as a banquet hall it is, and many times have I feasted here. Ha ha ha, look ye, I will show you a dance. And he began bounding here and there, anon flinging back his head and laughing silently. Thought I, this man is mad. As he danced his weird dance, I looked about me. The trail went not on, but stopped in the glade. Come, said I, we must on. Do you not smell the rank, hairy scent that hovers about the glade? Wolves den here. Perhaps they are about us, and are gliding upon us even now. He dropped upon all fours, bounded higher than my head, and came toward me with a strange, slinking motion. That dance is called the Dance of the Wolf, said he, and my hair bristled. Keep off. I stepped back, and with a screeching that set the echoes shuddering, he leaped for me and through a sword hung in his belt he did not draw it. My rapier was half out when he grasped my arm, and flung me headlong. I dragged him with me, and we struck the ground together. Wrenching a hand free, I jerked off the mask. A shriek of horror broke my lips. Beast's eyes glittered beneath that mask. White fangs flashed in the moonlight. The face was that of a wolf. In an instant, those fangs were at my throat. Taloned hands tore the sword from my grasp. I beat at that horrible face with my clenched fist, but his jaws were fashioned on my shoulder and his talons tore at my throat. Then I was on my back, the world fading. Blindly I struck out. My hand dropped and closed automatically about the hilt of my dagger, which I had been unable to get at. I drew and stabbed, a terrible half-bestial bellowing screech. Then I reeled to my feet, free. At my feet lay the wolf. I stopped, raised the dagger, then paused, looked up. The moon hovered close to her zenith. If I slew the thing as a man, its frightful spirit would haunt me forever. I sat down waiting. The thing watched me with flaming wolf eyes. The long, wiry limbs seemed to shrink, to crook. Hair seemed to grow upon them. Fearing madness, I snatched up the thing's own sword and hacked it to pieces. Then I flung the sword away and fled.